Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, Kaya, and Diara talking about the underreported news of the past week. And then I sit down with Rodney Carmichael and Sidney Madden from the new NPR show, Louder Than a Riot, that looks at the link between hip-hop and mass incarceration. I learned a ton. My advice for this week is advice that I gave, uh, I'm sure I gave it a while ago, because it's something I tell myself all the time, is do the work and the rest will follow. Do the work and the rest will follow. Do the work and the rest will follow. Let's go. Hello, family. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me at Diara Ballinger on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And I'm Dre at DIY on Twitter. All right, folks. There's no shortage of things to talk about, but we think top of the menu for today is the vice presidential debate that took place with Kamala Harris, Vice President Pence, and the fly. <laughs> All were on stage. And the fly. For a, 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 a really intense conversation on policy, which was fascinating because we didn't have that conversation uh, for the presidential debate that happened just a couple weeks ago, even though it seems like years ago. Um, so I thought Kamala came out very strong. I thought she... I mean, I'm rooting for everybody black. No two ways about it. <laughs> However, I wanted her to be stronger. I didn't feel like she was hitting her points head on. I felt like Mike Pence looked reasonable and thoughtful and he could have been lying. Every word he said could have been a lie, but he said it convincingly. He said it in a way that looked far more vice presidential than I thought she did. And I know like I'm about to get kicked out of my book club and kicked out of every other black girl (laughs) thing that I'm in. But I just got to say it like I actually felt like I was expecting her to come in there and crush it hard. And I feel like he played a little mind game on her and and I felt like she was not as strong as I I wanted her to be. But I think it's also hard to be strong and it's hard to be it's like it's just not like normal circumstances, right? It's I get not that, like but this is but look, this is the big stage, right? Like this is where it counts. This is where you gotta come with everything that you've got. And I maybe it's just me. I wanted more. I thought there was gonna be more and I was a little disappointed. I think it is hard, Kaya, because they have done a good job for their base of making the lies seem like boldness, like that they are just bold and they are just like, they're willing to say the thing nobody else is saying. And you're like, no, I think I think that's a lie. And then it, it's like Kamala and Joe have to like not sound angry. Like, I feel like I feel yes. like I can feel them working so hard not to be angry. That was evident. Not to be glib. Yes. Not to be like F you. Not like I can feel the restraint. Yes. And the hard part is that the like you feeling the restraint actually means that they don't always get to be their best selves. Like they are like most interesting and like the best stories and da da because they are like counteracting the wildness coming from Pence and Trump. 
So, I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, right? But I think that there's two ways to go about it and take this with as big a grain of salt as you could possibly take <laughs> it from somebody who has Guy never... Has been uninvited from all social right. circles and, right now. And somebody who's never been on that big a stage with that amount of pressure. So, I, I like, this is armchair quarterbacking, I admit it. But I feel like you could either, like, try to counter what they say and tell the truth or, like, hit your points. And I feel like they, she was so busy trying to restrain herself and figure out how to like counter the, the lie and whatnot that like the real points gained are like, here is my thing. Let me tell you why this. Let me tell you why that. And I feel like she had moments of that, but I wanted, I wanted that to be crisper. I wanted her to just be crushing it on the things that Democrats have to be proud of or that she has to assert. And, and so I wanted a little more... Like, they're going to lie. They're going to say whatever they want to say. Bam. Cut that stuff out and go hard with what you know to be good and right. And Yeah. I mean, it was definitely unfair. Like the Because Pence didn't answer any of the questions, right? Like, it was yeah. unfair because she felt, like, rightly obligated to actually answer the questions that you're being asked, as, like, any politician should. And Pence just didn't even play by those rules. He was just like, let me talk about what I wanted to talk about last question for this question. And then, like, let Kamala t- actually answer the, the tough question that was really being asked. Whether it was, like, oh, the presidential nominees are really old. And, like, maybe we should, like, what does that mean for, you know, the line of succession? And, like, all, like that's a serious question. Pence was like, I'm not going to answer it. And Kamala was like, we, you know, we probably should answer that question. You know, similarly, a question around um, taxes and releasing medical records. Like, all of these things that are... Like real questions, uh, you could tell that Pence just felt no obligation to actually answer the questions, just like pivoted and punted the question to Kamala. And then and then Kamala sort of got uh, the moderator was also being unfair and like asking those questions of Kamala and like in a way that like they allowed Pence to sort of dodge the, uh, his way out of that. So, I mean, it wasn't fair. I think, you know, the the good news is um, that you know they really needed a miraculous performance to upset sort of the existing dynamics. It looks like Pence did not deliver a, mir- a miraculous performance. Sure uh, Kamala didn't. was good; she was strong. Like she held the line, and like the polling looks good after the debate too. So, you know, again, take the polling with a grain of salt. Make sure you vote like now if you can, and definitely by election day. But yeah, it was wild to see. Pence was definitely better than Trump, though. So, I mean, that's not saying much, but it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. The only thing I'd say, too, is that they said that, um, I don't know if you read this, but Buttigieg apparently was the stand-in for Pence during the debate prep with, with Kamala. And I really do think they need a comedian. They need somebody who will stand up there and literally be like, no, and like, like won't be grounded, won't have a sense of integrity, doesn't care, like... They need to practice against that because even the wildest Pete is probably yeah. like a lot of integrity, right? Totally. And like a lot of thoughtfulness and like a full, complete thought as opposed to like a no that's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to answer that, completely veering off to something else, you know? But that's what we had for Hillary, like Philippe Reigns, who's been doing communications for her for a jillion years, who I adore, play Donald Trump. And if you know Philippe or have worked with Philippe, you know he's a perfect Donald Trump. So then let's and get I say Philippe that, in there. I say that with all due respect. Um, but I think it's also this thing, Kai, where it's just like, I want her to act up. Just like, do what you feel. Because I'm just like, where did it get Hillary? Being all composed and being the, you know what I mean? Like, I wanted you know, her to crush him. That's yeah, what it is. At I the end of the day, like, I wanted her to crush Hillary him. you're a Hillary insider. So when you say that, Listen, where did it get Hillary? Okay, Jar. I wanted her to just like go over there and pound her fist on that desk and just be like, lies, you know? So I just feel like. <laughs> but you know, but you know who salvaged that for us was the fly. The fly came in and the fly. 
really was. Right, right at the law enforcement question, you know? The fly did what Senator Harris could not do. I can't. My favorite one was it when it on the meme was, it was something like the fly's name was Tyrone. And it was like, look, y'all, look, Tyrone's on TV. I mean, I died. Died. Sam, you said it was right in the law enforcement question? Yeah, it was like Mike Pence was just opening his mouth to talk about white supremacy and law enforcement and all of this. And then like the fly lands on his head. And I don't even know what he said after that. Like it just it was over at that point. Nobody knew what he said because first you got up to move the fly off your TV because everybody <laughs> thought it was their fly. <laughs> And then you realize it wasn't your fly, it was his fly, and that the fly was staying around more than any fly in the history of all flyness <laughs> in any one place. And then you are wondering, is the fly trapped in his hairspray? Like, what is going on? I, can nev- I cannot remember a fly ever. <laughs> all right. I'm going to swat that fly away. Let's jump in. <laughs> jump into some news here. Topics. So my news is about a new study that just came out from the National Registry of Exonerations uh, that looked into uh, over 2,400 cases of people who'd been exonerated after being convicted of crimes uh, to find out, so what were the, the factors that led to them being falsely convicted? Uh, and what they found was that in 54% of all cases uh, where somebody was later exonerated, uh, there was some form of official misconduct involved. So misconduct on the part of the police or the prosecutors. Uh, and in 35% of all cases, it was police misconduct that was responsible. Uh, and in particular, a, a range of things like witness tampering, uh, coercing people in the context of interrogations, denying the release of exculpatory evidence, a whole host of tactics that had contributed to folks being uh, wrongfully convicted uh, and ending up being wrongfully incarcerated as a result. So I wanted to talk about this because we talk about policing and police violence, um, and oftentimes that takes the form of uh, cases where the police very directly harm somebody, uh, physically harm somebody. Um, What we're seeing here is a way in which police abuse their role uh, and their power in the system to uh, coerce people uh, into, uh, in in some cases, issuing a false confession, um, and in other cases, just leading people to end up being incarcerated and convicted of things that they didn't do. Um, So that's what the study shows. Um, I'm not aware of another study that's this expansive, just looking at this breadth of cases. Um, And again, uh, this shows that the police officers and the prosecutors in these cases have a lot of power. In these cases in particular, are using that power uh, to get folks incarcerated who are innocent. So Sam, this this reminded me of two things. One is when we think about the police officer bill of rights and the police union contracts, the police were so intentional about providing multiple layers of protection so they don't get railroaded in interrogations. Like they just, they were like, interrogations can only happen at this time. They all have to be recorded. They can't do this. I need to get the, like they protected themselves against the very same interrogation techniques that we see leading to wrongful convictions happening. And like, it is just a reminder that they know the system well enough to make sure that they're not victims of it while they victimize other people. The second thing though is, and Sam, you know this because in our organizing work, Outside of the pod, 
people sort of sometimes look at us like the police are like this ancillary thing. Like, you know, why do you talk about the police? You should be dealing with mass incarceration. And we're like, no, the police are mass. There is no way to talk about mass incarceration without talking about the police. So when people think about misconduct and wrongful convictions and da da like people aren't thinking like, oh, like the police probably had a part to do with this. It's like, yeah, the police, like the process is leading to mass incarceration. It's not like all these bad people in air quotes out here doing things. It's also like a bad system. Oh, and the third thing, actually three things, is that this remind me too of the danger of the way we talk about prosecutors is that the dominant narrative right now is like elect a good prosecutor. If we elect the great prosecutor, but it's like, yeah, once you get the person in, that doesn't automatically change the practices of the office or the power of the office or put in safeguards in the office so that people's lives aren't ruined. And like that has to be a part of the work too. So like, yeah, good people are fine, but a better system is better. And like uh, this shows us that we got to actually do that. And and DeRay, just building off of that point, I think, you know, having been a prosecutor for a short time, even at the DUI or criminal misdemeanor level, it's still like, you need to get convictions. You need to get convictions. Like the whole metrics for like by which prosecutors offices like measure success are convictions. What are the length of sentencings you're getting? So I think even the very nature of like how these prosecutors offices, how police are even operationalized, like the whole measure of success is to close a case. The tactics and the ethics involved in there, not so much attention paid to that, but the end result is what everybody focuses on. So I think the fact that I mean, this is wild. 72% of cases in which the person was wrongfully convicted of murder, there was official misconduct in 72% of those cases. That's a real big percentage, everybody. So yeah, I found this fascinating. And just from my own experience and the, the visibility I've had into how these offices are run, I just see it as being absolutely true. I found it to be incredibly demoralizing, right? Because it, it, it means that like justice and the truth just don't matter, right? Matter. This right. idea of closing cases above all else, right, wrong, or otherwise means you like nobody gets a fair shake. One guy who another guy admitted to the murder, but they still sent this young man to jail and it was 15 years before he was exonerated. I mean, this is about ruining people's lives. And then you say, oh, I'm sorry. Like, whose job is it, I guess? I I understand that that the police and the prosecutors work together, supposedly in pursuit of doing what's right for the public. But whose job is it to make sure that Like you're doing, where's the accountability for being correct and right and not just closing cases? Um, I just, this is not my field. I don't know much about this, but it just seems that if you are, I mean, you you are remotely caught up in this, you just like your chances of being convicted of something that you didn't do are much higher than should be. When we talk about innocent until proven guilty and what, like who in the system for people like you, Diara, who know this thing, whose job is it to make sure that somebody is telling the truth? I mean, it really, it's so individualized in terms of like what your values are. Hmm. Like, I mean, even when I was prosecuting misdemeanor cases, like I made sure the public defender was doing their job too. And then I was making sure that I did my job. But like, that was me right out of law school caring about somebody. Where most of the folks who, you know, unfortunately, and this is my experience, but most of the folks who are my colleagues in my office, they were really zealous about their, you know, how they were prosecuting cases. It's what's wrong with the system in terms of like what, 
what are we trying to achieve and what's at stake um, and a real exploration of that and, and a commitment to the truth and to justice. And that's not what we have in this country. Yeah. Okay. So my, my news is from the LA times. It actually just came out. Um, but it's a story on how California prison factories were kept open during all of COVID essentially even though there was a spread of COVID-19 across different prisons in California. And so it really focuses on an incarcerated woman. Her name is Robbie Hall, who was stitching masks for 12 hours a day in a sewing factory at a women's prison in Chino in California. Um, And for several weeks, Hall and other women churned out tons of masks, thousands of masks, but were actually forbidden from wearing the masks themselves. Um, and essentially they, so these women and a a host of others are actually seamstresses at the California institution for women. Um, and the fabric that they were actually using was coming from a nearby men's prison where an outbreak, a COVID outbreak had happened and it ended up killing 23 of those incarcerated men. Um, and the boss from that prison was visiting both institutions. So going back and forth and keep in mind, like nobody's wearing masks. And so Hall and others, you know, they're stitching these masks every single day, very worried about the fabric coming from this prison that had this high infection rate. But nevertheless, they kept working, one, because the prison factory was kept open, but also because they needed to make money. So they make up to, I think it's 60 cents a day, 60 cents a day, 12 hours a day. And the money that they make goes to like, you know, buying soap and other, you know, essentials um, that they wouldn't otherwise have without working all these hours. I don't even want to say long story short, because this story is like happening right now. Like they are still living in these conditions, having to work in this prison factory. Um, And so I don't know. it's, It's interesting. I think everyone should take a look. The other thing that I learned from this is that manufacturing from prison factories in California makes about, I think in one year in 2019 had made $23 million. It's an industry. It's slavery, y'all. That's what it is. It is heartbreaking, but I think especially just considering the times that we're living in and this vice presidential debate where Pence said that there was no systemic racism in this country and the fact that we have you know, prison factories where people are literally enslaved, living and existing in these type of conditions. And this isn't something that everybody knows and everyone is actively trying to dismantle. I don't know, y'all, this one just really blew my mind. Not only did they keep the prison factories open, they told the prisoners that they would lose their jobs if they didn't come to work, if they were you know, afraid of COVID and wanted to take some personal precautions. They were told that they would lose their jobs if they missed work. And at the same time, they upped the quotas that um, the people had to produce. So it wasn't just enough that the factories were open. They were demanding more and more and more from these folks who were working in a compromised position. And these people don't have any rights to say, you know, because they're incarcerated to say, I don't feel safe or I don't want to do this. If this is how you're putting money on your commissary, you are literally risking your life for a bar of soap or for feminine products. And that's the position that we put people in during incarceration, which is just untenable. And America's capitalistic 
I don't know, whatever. I don't even have a word for like greed is not enough. Like, I, I don't know this, like our willingness to exploit anything and anybody to make money is fully on display in a situation like this one. My news is around an article in the New York Times called How Rhode Island Reopened Schools. And you know, I'm the schools lady, I'm all about it. Um, but to me, this is more of a story about leadership than it is necessarily about schools. And the leader who I'm excited to highlight is Governor Gina Raimondo, who is the governor of Rhode Island. And yes, Rhode Island is the smallest state in the union. And yes, there are only 200,000 schools children in Rhode Island and all of that. But what Governor Raimondo did was decide that she was going to do school reopening in a very different way. In most cases and in most places, school reopening decisions were left to individual districts to decide what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it. Um, but in Rhode Island, Governor Raimondo centralized their school reopening plan and created a whole government approach to how schools would reopen. She first put public and private schools on a single calendar to simplify reopening. First of all, can you imagine if you are a parent who have who has kids in both systems or in multiple districts or whatever that are never on the same schedule and now everybody's going back to school at the same time and there's a clear reopening plan? Revolutionary. Um, she opened 14 rapid testing locations exclusively for students and teaching staff. She set up a statewide contact tracing system just for schools. She called in the National Guard to assist with school testing and logistics. They man a 24-7 crisis command center, an operations hub for schools where they manage school walkthroughs and they deploy substitute nurses. Um, they bought PPE in bulk for the state, which is great from a procurement perspective. You get lower prices. Um, they created protocol guides for every district to follow. And the reason why this is all pretty revolutionary is because, in fact, the governor feels like this is an equity play. She says the risk of children being left behind academically, mentally, and potentially permanently is 100% certain. This is the front line of equity. Who do you think is going to be left behind and permanently hurt by this? And when I think about what I see across the country, um, I see wealthy school districts where they are figuring out ways to get kids to engage in school in person. I see private schools uh, where they are going out of their way to make sure that kids are able to interact in person, at least for some portion of the time. And my worry is that I also see all of the statistics which say the parents who are most reluctant to send their kids to school for in-person learning are African-American and Latino parents. And so I worry, um, one of my very good friends is on the board of a fancy private school, all boys Catholic private school in New York. And they were at the board meeting touting that they're doing in-person and they're doing distance learning. But since most of the African-American and Latino parents are reluctant to send their kids, they have made provision for all of those kids to attend through Zoom. And so what's happening is the white kids are coming to school every day and African-American and the Latino kids are at home. And so as my friend who's a board member started asking questions about to the African-American and Latino kids, 
how do you feel? And they said, well, look, we feel isolated. We feel like we're not getting the same things that the kids in person are getting. And so even though we, you know, our communities are disproportionately affected, and even though we are right to be super careful about sending our kids to school, we see this equity piece playing out yet again um, in terms of our kids being left behind. Um, the reason why I think this is a leadership story is because I think Governor Raimondo saw a problem and decided to tackle it in a very different way. One of the things that she says in the article is these districts aren't going to be able to do this on their own. I've studied the failure of the federal government to lead in this crisis, and I didn't want it to happen to our cities and our towns. And I think the way big problems get solved is when you pull everybody together. And so the governor has pulled together the Department of Education, the Department of Health, the National Guard, and all kinds of other folks in the state to ensure that kids have some opportunity, you know, at least part-time, um, have some opportunity to engage in classes. And the state has cases, right? There's been a 2% positivity rate, but they haven't had any outbreaks. And what they say is the plan is not to avoid cases altogether. In fact, that's not realistic, but how the system handles it, you know, is what they're trying to manage. And when you look at COVID data, in schools, at least over the end of September, I was looking at a study where 200,000 kids in 47 states were assessed over the last two weeks in September. The infection rate for students was 0.13% for students, right? So that is less than a quarter of a percent for students testing positive and 0.24% among staff. And so again, it's not like there's not going to be any positive cases, but all around the world, all around the country, people are managing this in thoughtful ways. And when you are able to bring together everybody in a community to bring resources to bear against this issue, there is a way to be able to educate our young people and to keep them safe. Kaya, I took this and sort of was thinking about what are the other stories that we hadn't heard about, like that we hadn't talked about in education too. And, you know, this is something that you would be dealing with right now if you were still superintendent. And I would be losing my mind about if I was the human capital guy is I hadn't even thought about how high school sports have become a battleground in this COVID conversation. Hmm. So in 31 states, they have modified fall sports competitions because of the pandemic. Uh, but 14 states are carrying on as usual. And then in Virginia, North Carolina, Oregon, Nevada, California, and D.C., all fall competitions have been postponed until late winter or spring. And uh, there's a USA Today article that talks about it, but I hadn't even considered that there's some parents in places who are so angry that about this whole sort of hoax of COVID, in air quotes, that they're calling it, that they're refusing to wear masks in the crowds, that they are like refusing to tell their players to wear masks. So it's leading to these COVID upticks. And it's like, y'all, we are trying to get back to normal, but we will never get back to normal if you keep breaking the rules. Or it's like, what happened? I have a friend who she coaches in Maine, actually. She essentially, coach, they don't have a lot of people around them. So it's like the players are playing, but it's not really a whole lot of people allowed to be around them. And in her community, that is working. But there are other communities where people are really upset about it. Like, I want to see my child play. It's like, I think you want to see your child live, too. And 
And, you know, those might be at odds in this moment about the pandemic. So I just hadn't thought about fall sports as this battleground in the way that it actually is becoming across the country. And shout out to the governor for leading because Lord knows there's not enough leadership happening. So my news was about uh, this interview called Prisons into Hospices. And the takeaway was that because of excessive sentences that were dealt out during the 70s, 80s and 90s, it's projected that in the next 10 years, around 25 to 40 percent of people in New York state prisons will be elderly people. And like I had just never again, this is like one of the things that like the data helps us think about in ways that people hadn't considered is what does mercy look like? What does grace look like? What does... What do our strategies look like for ending incarceration when the prison population will be elderly people? Like, what? How do we start to contend with that from a policy perspective? Uh, and I, you know, I haven't heard this be a dominant part of the conversation about uh, ending mass incarceration. But there is a question about like you're at eighty years old. It's like, what do, is that really helping our society that you are like that? Even the loose argument doesn't seem to hold. And I'll tell you, I did, I've been to a lot of prisons around the world, and I, I was at Angola for, I did a long visit to Angola, and Angola has a hospice program. And the hospice program in Angola in Louisiana uh, is, it's a big program, it's run by uh, other men who are incarcerated. So when you are about to die, you get sort of linked up with the hospice uh, crew they are there with you in your final moments. They help move the body. They make the casket. Like there's this whole sort of rhythm and ritual. And all I could think about was like, one, how beautiful it was that people have community and compassion at the end of their days. And just how sad it is that we have actually like built up a whole system around this as opposed to releasing people, as opposed to letting people be around their loved ones, be around their family members. But that dying in cages is something that we actually have allowed to be a public policy position that's actually a position. And I just hadn't even thought about that. So I wanted to bring this here because, you know, as, as we always say in organizing, like this is structural. It's like it's the parole board. It is a whole host of things that we need to change to actually make this better. But this will be something to contend with. And I was fascinated by it. It's an issue that just keeps growing and growing and growing as like generations of people who were incarcerated under you know three strikes laws, under a whole host of laws that impose tough sentencing on a whole host of things like drug possession, are now sort of aging in in prison. And you see this, and then on the other hand, you see the the research. Which shows that, like after the age of of around forty, like your odds of reoffending are like almost zero. So like there is no like public safety rationale uh, for incarcerating or separating from society, like anybody over the, over like a certain age, over like 50, 60 years old. There is very little possibility that anybody who is incarcerated past that age um, who is released will like reoffend or or engage in uh, recidivism, right? So so the science is clear that there's like no public safety rationale for any of this. The data is clear that this is getting to be a bigger and bigger problem as more and more people continue to serve longer and longer sentences that have been imposed over the past few decades. Um, and at the same time, you have governors that have all kinds of power to pardon people. Um, you have you know, prison boards and uh, Department of Corrections that can issue new policies around compassionate release um, and make it easier for folks to get out um, after a certain age. Um, so there are a whole host of solutions. It's like a, an unwillingness um, and a lack of courage on the part of folks in power, on the part of governors, on the part of state 
state legislators um, to actually operationalize what is clear, um, and that is that like these folks shouldn't be behind bars. They shouldn't be incarcerated. They should be released immediately. They should be supported with their healthcare needs, with their needs as they age. Um, but like incarceration is not an effective solution. It is incredibly costly. Like there's no reason for us to continue down this path. Uh, it just takes courage on the part of governors, on the part of legislators to put in place the types of policies that folks deserve. We have some deep cultural work to do in this country. Because I think at the end of the day, this really comes down to dignity and how we treat people and how we treat the elderly in this country who are free, who are not incarcerated, is deplorable. And what happens to them and how underfunded so many offices of aging are and just our general consciousness and approach to how we respect and care for the elderly. Now, being incarcerated it's probably the most vulnerable population. It's, it, it is probably akin to being on death row because in a sense it is. If you get to a certain age and you're still incarcerated and, you're still, and, you, and you are suffering from illnesses potentially. In the article that I, that I covered, one of the women who was working in the factory was 70 years old and had a walker. What is she doing there? What is she doing there? Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. NPR has a new dope limited run podcast called Louder Than a Riot. Louder Than a Riot reveals the interconnected rise of hip hop and mass incarceration from Bobby Shmurda to Nipsey Hussle. Each episode explores an artist's story to examine a different aspect of the criminal justice system that disproportionately impacts black people. Here's my conversation with the hosts, Rodney Carmichael and Sydney Madden. Let's go. Sydney and Rodney, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you. Thank you for having us, man. This is this is something. Can you talk about the story of how you got to Louder Than a Riot? Like, what was the? You know, I'm always interested in in how people like begin podcasts. Like, what leads you to this space? What was the story like for both of you? I mean, I think the story for us starts with us coming to NPR. You know, we we've both been journalists uh, for years. Myself. You know, I, I work more so in the print space and, and obviously online at Alt Weekly for a lot of years. And I was really craving the ability to go somewhere where I could work in different media, different forms of journalism. And so just coming to NPR was the first step in, in, in saying, man, maybe I could get a podcast started one day. You know, I think that's probably always <laughs> the dream when, when somebody comes to NPR. And so that's that was the beginning of it. You know, we both started NPR in 2017. You know, by the beginning of 2018, we we already had this idea and we're proposing it um, internally. That's pretty much what it was. I mean, to speak more to the evolution of the idea, like Rodney said, we both came to NPR in 2017. I was already a fan of like Rodney's pen and, and his brain before that. And I knew linking up with him that we would be able to create a piece of storytelling and investigative work that goes beyond just headlines, does the story behind the story and gives you larger sociopolitical context to a lot of things that people like to write off about hip hop. 
So that confluence of ideas between hip hop and mass incarceration really came from us seeing how a lot of cases, high profile cases were treated as breaking news or isolated incidents. But, you know, we know none of these things happen in a vacuum. And we know from covering hip hop for so long that uh, at its core, one of its like unofficial building blocks is using music for resistance and rebellion and resilience. So we wanted to really uh, pull on that thread a lot more and create a through line narratively. Well, here we are. And, and now you, now you got a <laughs> here podcast. Here we are. I, I was just on, uh, I was just an Apple podcast today and, and you all are like one of the featured ones right there uh-huh. when you open it, which is sort okay. of cool. Okay, okay. You got you to you rate and review, man. We, 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 we need all the help we can get. Right, man. we got to do all those plugs. Like, <laughs> I love it, I love it. So can you tell us, uh, what is the goal of Louder Than a Ride? So you, you sort of started to talk about it, Cindy, but but what does this podcast add to the, the space of podcasts or the conversation about resistance, the conversation about artists? Like, what's the work you aim to do or that you do? I think you put it great when you talked about the conversation of resistance and how artists play into that. And I always think about the quote from um, Tony K. Bambara, who says, you know, the function of the artist is to make revolution irresistible. And I think that's what hip hop has always done, like in its bones from day one. It's been the reporters and the political pundits and the sociologists out on the street and, you know, delivering you real unfiltered talk in the lyrics, even way before there were any, like, studies or or research projects about these communities that are so underserved and and that live under the guise of criminality and the prison industrial complex even when they don't talk about it uh the music gives them the outlet to talk about it and so i think one of the main goals of this podcast is to give the culture the mic and let it tell its own stories uh which we do all throughout the series when we um profile rappers who've come in contact with the criminal justice system whether it be they're incarcerated or they've melded a lot of their career around marrying resistance and their art together stuff like that so giving those artists the moment to speak their truth in the light and doing it on a platform that allows them to be whole people is important. I think respectively, that'll give us more ammo for cultural conversations about what hip hop can do and like what hip hop is capable of and and where hip hop can take the conversation. And hopefully those cultural conversations lead to cultural shifts. And I know we're living in a time of great reckoning and a lot of wave making and stuff, but this is not a moment. This is like a part of a longstanding movement. And we just want to stamp the flag of where hip hop stands within all of it. We just want to want to make this thing real for people. You know, I think mm-hmm. we hear so much about mass incarceration all the time and you hear the numbers. So and so many million this and so and so many million that. And I think, in a lot of ways, it just becomes a bunch of numbers and stats to people. You know, I think when we kind of set out looking at this thing, you know, some things were were kind of surprises to us in a sense, you know, even though we've, we we cover hip hop. I mean, when you really think about the fact that rap as a, as a recorded genre of music jumps off in 79, 80, and at the same time that, you know, the kind of like this this modern era of mass incarceration jumps off in the early 80s on the heels of uh, Reagan Reagan's drug war. And the fact that, you know, they, they're kind of running these parallel courses over the last 40 years 
you start to see how in some ways they are in a really weird kind of twisted conversation with each other, mm -hmm. you know, because he, like, like Sydney says, hip hop is constantly commenting about and critiquing rapping and raging against the machine, so to speak. But also, you know, a lot of, a lot of the forces that are working on, you know, rap as a, as it becomes a commodity and, and that type of thing, you start to see, elements reflected in the music um, and in the culture that in some ways seem to feed back into the, the prison system and I will be an over-policed and all this kind of stuff. So we just felt like, you know, now we're at this point where, where hip-hop is, is the most consumed genre and America obviously is, you know, has the highest incarceration rate in the world. And these two phenomena have kind of naturally grown up with each other and there's plenty of cross connection. Let's like make this thing more real by using hip hop as the lens. Um, and not only the lens, but by looking at rappers who have been, you know, impacted. We know that criminal justice system disproportionately impacts black America and, and other communities of color. So let's use them and tell their stories to make this thing and this impact more real and not just a bunch of numbers and stats. So we're recording this uh, at a time where you you have a couple episodes out right now. I'd love to know, and I and I say this as somebody who has a podcast, I'd love to know what you learned in the process or what was surprising to you as you've gone through recording these and like hearing people talk about things or like putting together narratives uh, for your work. Like, have you learned things that you didn't know or like, what's that been like? Journalism and the role that media has played in, in, in all of this. It's easy to point fingers outward point fingers at uh, the criminal justice system, point fingers at the music industry and, and its complicity in some of this. But media has probably played the biggest role in terms of perpetuating certain stereotypes and feeding the fear and paranoia that, you know, America has had for so long about Black people. I mean, straight up, mm -hmm. you know, and I think one of the really important, crucial things, and you know, I think as black journalists, we we already have an understanding of this, right? But when you're operating in it, because you know, I've had other beats in journalism as well, but I've been doing the music thing for a long time. So getting back into a space where, you know, we were doing criminal justice type stuff and 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 being able to see how in a lot of ways, you know, media is having this 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 reckoning right now, uh, too, along with so many other spaces. Um, in, in the country right now, uh, the preferential treatment, I think, that media tends to show to the criminal justice system and to people in positions of authority and having to be conscious of that to make sure that we didn't replicate those same errors, those same biases or whatever. You know, it was one thing to feel like you kind of had a theoretical understanding of it, but it was a whole nother thing to put it into practice and to be mm -hmm. working along with other journalists. You know, we sometimes had to challenge and say, hey, we're, we're not going to give more preferential treatment to what this prosecutor is saying than what this artist who she prosecuted or convicted is saying. You know, we want to honor both of their sides of the story. We don't want to make concessions to one side and, and, and not, you know, make those kind of concessions to the other side. And so just being able to kind of actively write some of the wrongs that we've seen or kind of understood or in journalism on the ground or in, in the process of it, I think was kind of an eye-opening experience for me. Just to jump off that, I'll say in terms of getting the reporting done, it was a lot of unpacking truth that you 
thought were self-evident about America. Like we know foundations of policing in America have a lot to do with um, the evolution of like the slave catcher, right? And how blackness in America in the eyes of the law is oftentimes synonymous with criminality. And the darker you are, the more devious your motives. And then we know the stats and the superlatives of hip hop being the most consumed genre and, and the U.S. incarcerating more people per population than any other country. Like, you know those stats, you know those superlatives, but then when you break down of how things get this way, how how three times the amount of people who are incarcerated and currently like in prison physically behind bars are actually like living their lives on parole and probation and how long that shadow of law goes when you live your life on parole and probation and the pitfalls of that and, and a lot of the hoops you have to jump through and, and the loopholes you need to find just to live your daily life. Getting into the nitty gritty of that was really eye-opening. Uh, learning about the history and the manifestation of things like RICO laws, which were originally conceived to round up high-functioning crime families and mob bosses. And now they're being used primarily to categorize whole swaths of communities and prosecute them as if they're all part of one street gang. And then also learning to let people have their own epiphanies as the reporting goes along and not trying to oversell them on the premise. It's all been something that's been a crash course in true crime reporting and social justice in dissecting music in a way that even I haven't done before, even as a, as a music journalist. So every case and every theme that we touch upon, it's been a moment of learning. I love it. How, how do you think the pandemic will influence um, or has influenced the way musicians sort of make their music or, or think about their role in society? And, and like, I know that the pandemic at this point is so, so closely tied to the protests, but do you think that this will have an impact on the way music is made? We're still we're still living through it. So it's hard to tell on the other side how the music industry and and how and how the art of performance will change. But I one thing that I have found encouraging is some artists are taking more time to use their influence and use their platform for sources of education and advocacy. Going back to the COVID outbreak as it ties into mass incarceration. Uh, we've seen a lot of outbreaks and a lot of neglect in prisons all across the country. And when it comes to providing those people who are imprisoned with the correct materials to protect themselves from this from this virus, I've noticed more artists tapping in and using this time to learn and share what they learn. And, and sometimes it's fodder for debate. Sometimes it's ill executed. But I think opening up the stage to more conversation, more education is really important. And you've had people who've done that even before the pandemic. And I'm thinking of people like No Name, who has the No Name Book Club, who which really started because she didn't know enough about a topic. So she was like, okay, let me go back and, and read and study up on this. And like that level of humility is what informed her to create the book club. And again, it happened before the pandemic. But what I've seen during the pandemic is it's been a real unifier and a real uh, source of solace and education. Uh, I think that's one of the best examples of how an artist has changed their function and their practices during this, you know, motions vaguely all this. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are some of the stories that we can expect from, from the two of you over the run of the podcast? You know, it's a narrative podcast. And, and so once we get past this first episode where we're really kind of setting the course 
and diving into, you know, this 40 year history from the early 80s to now, we start telling very specific individual stories. We start with mm-hmm. former No Limit artist Mac Phipps, who has been incarcerated for 20 years now, you know, for a, uh, a murder that uh, a lot of people, including himself, obviously say he did not commit. His case is oddly enough very similar to see uh, murder uh, Master P's brother. They're both uh, nightclub shootings um, that happen. They're and they're both cases in which you know there have been witnesses who recanted testimony and um, just very similar, you know, in terms of how it happened. Um, both happened in Louisiana, and so yeah, we 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 tell his story over over the course of three episodes. And his story is really about the phenomenon of lyrics being used in trial, which is a really shockingly like common thing that happens nowadays. Uh, you know, we talked to Eric Nielsen, who is uh, one of the co-authors of a book Rap on Trial, where they really document how big of a tool this has become for prosecutors in the courtroom to, to prosecute uh, folks. And the thing is, they're not just going after celebrity rappers they're using this tactic against regular you know joe schmo or whomever the homeboy next door who you know writes lyrics in his in his notebook or you know throws lyrics on 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 his ig page or whatever um they're using that kind of stuff uh to to prosecute you know hip-hop is the only genre that's treated like this where where it's in in a court of law they, they say your lyrics are are factual and can be used to determine your state of mind and your personality and your intent and your motive and all of this kind of stuff. Mm. So we spent three episodes on that. We retell the DJ drama Gangsta Grills raid that happened in 2007. And and, and we kind of, I think we retell it in a way that that it has not been told before um, because we really focus on how that mixtape raid was really one of many examples of how our culture, not just in terms of hip hop, but black folks in America from from jump, but especially over the last what 100, 120 years or so, how our culture has has been criminalized. You know, it happened in the jazz era, it happened in the blues era, in the hip hop era. This crackdown on mixtapes is is one of the ways in which uh, there was a criminalizing of of the culture. Similarly to. Mac Phipps, who is someone who starts off our series, we do a deep dive into the case of Bobby Shmurda. And he was of viral fame in 2014. And then it was all taken away from him when he was caught up in a RICO charge that, you know, had him at the top of the Billboard charts in July and behind bars by December. And similar to what Rodney said about the cases of Mac Phipps and DJ Drama. This is a retelling of the story and a, and a reporting of the story that's never been heard before because it pulls at the tendrils of the potency of authenticity in rap and like how far you go to show authenticity, music industry complicity and, and what people are willing to buy into and then what people are willing to um, dispose of and neglect when it's not convenient for them anymore monetarily. Um, and then we get into the legal issue of using RICO laws against whole swaths of young black and brown men. And what happened to Bobby and, and his crew, GS9, is not an isolated incident. It's something that's happened 
all over the country. And it's a tactic to get one of those like big wins, like one of those huge like raid type of make the news moments. We do an aside there and we show you how it's happened in other communities like the Bronx 120 and and things like that. We tell you the story of Nipsey Hussle, but again, not the story you think you're going to hear. It's the story behind the story and more so of his musical legacy juxtaposed with his own community activism and how that is um, and what's left behind once he is gone. And, And we tell that through the story of someone who was shot right next to him the day that he passed away and the strife that that person has undergone in the in during the fallout of what's happened. We tell this story. We have a special report from um, one of our editors, Shakita Pascal, who goes to Philly and shadows the Philly rapper and activist Isis the Savior, who draws from her own experiences in prison and her own inhumane treatment to inform her art and to spread more awareness about prison conditions, especially grotesque prison conditions for women. We do all of these deep dives and all of these kind of, you know, proof is in the pudding of how these two things connect and intersect and and intermingle and and push back with each other. And then we bring you up to present day in this moment that we're all living through and talking about what are the realities of reform? What are the limits of reforming the prison industrial complex? And we tap in with some thought leaders and artists who talk about the possibility and the implementation of things like abolishing the prison industrial complex and where would we go from there and what would hip hop's role in that be? And then what would hip hop be if there wasn't this like intrinsic oppressor like you know, law and order, like the um, criminal justice system weighing down on black and brown communities. And every step of the way, you're going to see that hip hop is really a microcosm for black America. So it's going to show you a specific case that has to do with a rapper or a specific example that has to do within the culture, and then show you, you know, the broader picture, the zoom out moment, the larger socioeconomic umbrella where this is all happening and how it's all playing out and, and what black America at largest feeling about it. Well, there we go. This sounds it's like a uh, it's a lot. This is uh, <laughs> uh, but a lot. Sometimes a lot is good. You know, I'll, uh, sometimes um, one of the pieces of advice that one of my teachers gave me one day, she was like, "Dre, sometimes more is just more." Mm. <laughs> I was like, "Okay," uh, but sometimes more is actually better. So this is one where I think that more is actually better. The premise of the show can be a very overwhelming thing. It can be a very sprawling topic, but we show you narratively how this plays out in people's lives over and over in all different parts of the country and all different eras of hip-hop and all different decades to break it down and make it malleable digestible and, and conversational what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you the piece of advice that's coming to the top of my mind which i guess means it stuck with me <laughs> is um one from from a high school teacher to know there, you got to go there. Okay, okay. Don't think you can read about a whole community and then have the, <laughs> the creative license to make a commentary about it if, like, you not live in it, you know? And I think that <laughs> translates a lot to hip-hop, too, because it's like, you can't just talk about it. You got to be about it, you know? And I feel like I've let that guide me into a lot of spaces with humility that allows me to learn. And you know, like we're we're journalists, we're storytellers. We like talking to people. We like giving people their moment to tell their story. So not being afraid to just step outside of your comfort zone and try to learn things from experience and not just like live in in the 
in the comforts and the corners of removed academia sometimes. Yeah, I'm thinking about a I'm thinking about an early editor that I had at, at one of my earlier publications. I remember her stressing that it's it's always important to in terms of our writing and, and whatnot to write for where you want to see yourself in the future, you know, mm. like this publication might be a pit stop, but make sure that the level of work that you're doing matches the level that you're trying to get to. Mm. So, yeah, I, it, it's, it's not super poetic or anything like that. But I just remember being surprised because, you know, here she was my editor at this publication. And in a sense, she was telling me, don't get stuck here or don't get stuck into the bag of, you know, what we do here. Make sure that um, journalistically and and ethically and, and and everything else that you're holding yourself to a higher standard and the standard that's going to get you higher. You know what I'm saying? So I, I thought that was really, really important because, you know, we get in these jobs and, and you and you feel like, OK, you get there and it's like, OK, let me feed this animal the way it eats. Mm. Um but but you know she was saying you you got to have your own standard and 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 that's that's what's going to get you where you're trying to go. What do you say to people who are like, okay, I've done it all. I protested, called, emailed, I listened to the pod, I did all the things, and the world has not changed in the way that I wanted it to. Uh, people whose hope is being challenged in moments like this. What do you say to those people? I mean, that's a good question. I, I kind of feel like I'm probably there. You know, the whole cynical thing is like. That's kind of my wheelhouse, not not just because I'm, I'm a journalist, but but also because of my age. You know, I've I feel like I've seen uh, been on the planet a little bit long enough to see the cyclical nature of of things and the fact that just because we we're seeing it happen in a new way, like you know, now we got video or whatever, we think it's a new thing or a new phenomenon, and it's just the same thing that's been going on for forever and a day. I think that exposure and, and truth telling are just the, the best tools, man, the best tools for challenging the systemic ills and just the, the, the way things are, you know, and the status quo. It's always been shining a light. Um, and so in that way, I, 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 I'm, I'm not cynical. I mean, I feel like if I got to be on this earth and, and, you know, this is not just speaking to me, but speaking to whoever might feel like me a lot of times, we got to be on this earth. We got to be doing something. Why not be shining a light on on the BS? You know what I mean? Um, because the thing is, like, the BS likes the dark. You know what I'm saying? The, the BS flourishes in the dark. All the, you know, the, the systemic inequality and, and the structural racism and all of that stuff, it operates best when it's hidden, you know, and, and we say things like, man, the system is broken only to right. realize, wow, well, actually this system is working exactly the way it was created to work. When we start really digging into it and, 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 and understanding things. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's, I think the thing about this podcast is also one of the eye opening things is we all have a sense, you know, we black people in America, we all have a sense that, stuff is unequal in this country. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We got an understanding that it was unequal for our parents and our grandparents before them and on and on. And it's, you know, unequal for us. And, and you know, probably will continue to be on a lot of levels. 
But when you can actually start pinpointing things like Sydney talking about the RICO laws on this level or, you know, using lyrics on in trial, but they don't do that with any other genre, you know, the power of the prosecutor and plea deals in this country and, and, and you know, 97 percent of criminal cases going to plea deal instead of, you know, these people getting, you know, fair trials and you start to see the inner workings of the system, you know, it, it, it becomes eye-opening and it, and it really becomes, I feel like, easier to take a slice at a time and, and, and figure out, okay, how can we attack this? Or, or, or at least that's the knowledge, like just the knowledge of understanding because, you know, we all grow up hearing and, and, and maybe even being that person at times that just talk about the system broadly, you know, like the man, the system is against us. But, you know, when you can start to pinpoint the inequities within the system specifically, I think it just makes a huge difference and and and, and makes you less cynical and, and makes you feel like you know what the fight is about. Yeah. And I mean, that's exactly what hip hop does. Like hip hop has always held up the mirror to America's ills and, and, and to the the things that the news doesn't want to show you about a lot of, you know, racial inequality, racial inequity in this country. And it delivers it in a package that's, you know, unfiltered and also like inescapably cool. You know, <laughs> the thing that we're trying to draw out with this show is these big systemic ills are not something that it's so overwhelming. You should just look away and just like try to do you and just try to make it through the day. It's like, no, the things that are helping you make it through the day are actually contextualizing and pushing back on those big ills that you think are, are bigger than you. Like we went from rhyming in the park to like not being on MTV to fast forward things like Triller and TikTok and rap caviar dictating billboard charts and, and multi-million dollar sponsorship deals and Super Bowl commercials and, you know, stuff like that. The, the curators of the culture have so much power. And I think it's about empowering listeners on an individual level. Like I hope that this show that we're putting together and that we're giving to people gives people more language to talk about things that are wrapped about but not really talked about. Um, to talk about things like like policy changes in state to state when it comes to um, no-knock warrants or, or body cams or jurisdictions of raids, stuff like that. I hope it gives you more of a language and more of a lexicon that you feel is made for you because it is. Like, there's so much power in just like bombarding someone till they can't take it anymore to where they want to tune out. And this is really giving you the building blocks and it's setting the path where it's like, no, this is actually still for you. Like this is a conversation you are worthy of having. And this is a conversation that needs your voice in it. And this is just going to help someone approach subjects like mass incarceration, racial inequity in a, in a way that feels natural to them. You know, and I love what you said, Rodney, about the bullshit being able to fester and grow in the dark. But it's because like that's where it doesn't have to answer for itself. Right. That's where it doesn't have to form the words that proves how how racist and prejudiced it is. You know, that's when it doesn't have to put its shoes on and do the real work of, of working through its own like proclivities. And I think hip hop has always been like, nah, we're like blowing the roof off of this. We're like pushing the veil, 
putting up the mirror and you know we're gonna like scratch on those little grime marks because that's how we're own, that's how we're gonna get better cool well, we consider y'all friends of the pod can't wait to have you back and i can't wait i'm particularly interested in the bobby Schmurda episode all right uh oh it's gonna be i'm interested in the nipsey episode mm-hmm. okay. or the nipsey around so so thanks for telling telling stories like this you know i, I do think about i i think that there's so many stories that we have not figured out how to tell well. I think that people have so many questions and I'm excited that you are filling filling a hole here. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, DeRay. We appreciate you having us, man. Yeah. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. And our special contributor, Janetta Elzey. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 